A wonderful picture of that sovereign love of our Lord is pictured for us in Hebrews chapter two. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who also are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do come before you now once again praying that the thoughts of our hearts, the meditations of our minds would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Please be seated, and if you would, grab your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2. If you go all the way to the end of the Bible and then back up a little bit, you'll run into Hebrews Hebrews chapter 2, looking in verses 14 through 18, and as always, it will help, I believe, if you have your scriptures ahead of you as we work our way through this text. Have you ever had uh, someone misread a text of yours or um, or an email, something that you've sent because they've misread the tone? You are sending something and you're joking and they took it serious, or you sent something serious and they took it like you were joking. Uh, my guess is that uh, just watching people, a couple people smile and giggle, that many of you have had that experience of misreading the tone of something written and realizing that that changes everything in which you've done. We need to, as we are learning the scriptures, as we are learning to study the scriptures together and understand what the authors are saying to us, Realizing that the authors communicate with a certain tone makes a lot of difference for us. And we have to learn that when we come to a written passage of Scripture, it's not simply the words that are before us that are important, but we have to try to discern the tone of the text, what is being communicated for us. I don't know if you picked up on it in the passage that I just read, and I strongly encourage you to go back and read all of chapter 2 in Hebrews to try to capture the tone and to see if I'm right in picturing this tone. The tone that I think the author is using when he communicates these words in chapters 2, particularly verses 14 through 18, which we're going to walk our way through, and I think what you'll see is that there's a lot of content here. There's a lot of good information that is before us, but it's not just the information that I think we need to take away. It's not that this is a lecture course being given, I don't think, at least. When I read the text, the author is not dryly saying, and now this has happened theologically, then this happened theologically. What I picture when I read this text is that the author is in awe. The author is marveling. He's amazed at what's taken place. And he almost says, as a matter of fact, in verse 16, he does kind of use this word we translate it as surely God did this. But it's almost like, can you believe it? There's this sense of marvel and amazement that is before us. And and the author here wants you to be amazed at what God has done in the incarnation, in in bringing Christ to earth. A couple of 
Months ago, Kelly and I were out for an evening walk and we were walking around our neighborhood and suddenly the clouds parted and there was that super moon. Do you remember the super moon a couple months ago? It was uh, the fullest moon and then it's when the moon is at its closest to the earth. And so I looked it up today and the moon is at, or a couple of days ago, uh, the moon appears to be 17% bigger during a super moon just because of the way the moon circles and all this kind of stuff. And, but it was... Kelly and I stood there in just awe and just looked at this big, massive, full moon that was in the sky. And both of us stood there, we marveled at it. Now, I suppose that there's a possibility that someone could be so distracted by the astronomical spinnings of the earth, et cetera, et cetera, that they wouldn't marvel at the moon. Or they could be so distracted by everything that's happening around them that they would fail to see this massive globe in the sky. But if so, you were missing this wonderful marvel, something that you could just marvel at. I've spent a lot of time talking to parents uh, about giving birth and what that process was like and how much they, what they thought of it and those kind of things. I have almost universally, every time I talk with somebody, they comment on the awe, the amazement. It was so amazing what took place and everything is, you know, they're gobsmacked over the whole process of what it was that their child gave birth or that their son or wife, wife I guess, uh, gave birth to a, to a, to a child and, and just what all that would look like and the amazement of that. Now, I suppose that it's possible that somebody could be so distracted by the weather or the color of the room or the work of the medical personnel that you would miss and you wouldn't be amazed at what took place. But that's almost never my experience. My experience is that everybody is amazed. They're, they're in awe at what's going on here. We are starting the Advent series, as is evident around here in the sidebar here. Kudos to the folks that decorated, that set the ambiance around here for us to worship. Yep, a beautiful thing. Uh, thank you for those folks that took the time to do that. We're starting the Advent series here, and our Advent series, as Doug alluded to earlier, Doug and I are going to be working through the next four weeks. We're going to talk, be talking about the Incarnation. Now, when we talk about the Incarnation, this is the way in which the theological term in which you can describe what took place Christmas morning with the birth of Jesus. We use the term incarnation, and often what we're doing is that we're, we're impressed and we're excited about the fact that God came to earth. And that is absolutely a part of the incarnation, and that's something that we need to marvel at. But think about it for a second. All through the Old Testament, God came to earth at various different times. The fact that God came to earth, that's an amazing thing. But the incarnation is more than that. The word incarnation, the back end, shun, the process of uh, incarnate, the process of incarnate, uh, carnate, carnate, uh, carnivore, flesh, uh, the, the process whereby God, the divine, becomes flesh. The process by which the divine becomes flesh. That's what incarnation means. That's what we're going to be looking at here, and the point, or my hope here for today, is to set you up in such a way that you will not be distracted by everything else that happens in this season to such an extent that you fail to marvel at the incarnation. It's amazing that God came down to earth. Yes, indeed it is. But what sets Jesus' birth apart from all of those times that God appeared on earth throughout the Old Testament, 
What sets that apart is the incarnation that God became flesh. And I think we should marvel at that. Certainly, I believe the author before us does in Hebrews. He is amazed at what has taken place. And I think that's how he writes this. I think that's the tone. And let's go ahead and look at that together. If you have your text before you, again, just walking our way straight through the text. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. The children that he has in mind here are not uh, children. Uh, that's uh, uh, from the earlier quote in the passage. If you have your Bibles open, you can see in verse 13 that the author quotes the Old Testament and quotes this idea of uh, the children of God. They're re- referring to those whom God has called to be his followers. So of all of humanity, those that God has called to be his followers, he calls them his children. And since therefore the children, that is those of us, you and I, since we share in flesh and blood, now, flesh and blood there, obviously here, flesh and blood, are physical bodies. It almost makes it sound like Jesus is, is sharing here in our physical bodies, and that's part of it. But the flesh and blood, the use of flesh and blood here, is not just about our physicalness, but about our whole nature, everything that it means to be a human being. Since, therefore, the children have everything that it means to be a human being, flesh and blood, He himself, Jesus, Christ himself also partook of those same things. Now, this is where we get that idea of the incarnation. This is one of the texts where we understand that by partaking of these things, what we're saying is that the divine nature partook, took upon himself the human nature. Now, that should be awe-inspiring for us. If it isn't, it's possibly because we have the impression that the divine is just a little bit lower than humans anyway. Humans are pretty good stuff. And then the divine God, he's just kind of a superhuman. He's better than all of us humans. We all know that. He's stronger, he's more powerful, and stuff like that. But the difference between humans and God are pretty close. You know, there's the rest of creation down there. But here's the humans and God. So the fact that he became flesh means that he took a slight step down. Okay, that's great. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. But you think about that, that's crazy. That's not what took place here. We have the creator of the whole entire universe becoming a helpless, the most helpless, one of the most helpless parts of all creation, a little baby. The creator of everything becomes a creature, the omniscient one, the one who knows everything. There is nothing beyond his knowledge, nothing beyond his grasp. The all-powerful one, the one who knows everything. He learned and grew in wisdom and understanding as a young child. We have the one who upholds everything by the power of his word, Jesus Christ, asleep in a boat. We have the eternal one, the everlasting one, who dies on a cross. That's what the incarnation is. That's what this season celebrates. And I beg you, do not be so distracted by the things that happen in the, around this season that you don't marvel, that you don't marvel at the fact 
that the creator of the world became a creature. Because certainly our author does here. He goes on then and says, gives a reason for that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of these things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who for fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Okay, lots of words. Slow it down for a second. So that, why is it that Christ became incarnate? Okay, the fact that the creator becomes a creature is amazing, but, you know, if you're the God, you can do lots of things that, you know, you can just do it. No, wait a minute. We have the reason here. Here's the specific reason that is given why Jesus becomes human, why he becomes incarnate. That through death, he might, now, by the way, what cannot the divine being do? The divine being, by definition, cannot die. If we needed to be saved by a death, the divine being wanting to save us had to become human so he might die. We've often talked about this. We get so wrapped up in the, uh, you know, the marvel of the young child and the young birth and you, you, you picture all that kind of stuff. But most of the time, if you're around the church long enough, if you know your theology well enough, you know that the cross overhangs the stable the entire time. The, Christ is looking at his death the entire time of his existence, from birth through the cross. And here we see this, that Christ became flesh and blood specifically so that through death, what what might happen? That he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that he might destroy Satan. Now the word destroy there doesn't mean eliminate, it doesn't mean uh, 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 cease to exist. What it means is rob of power. Now again, this should cause you to be in awe of the fact. Christ became incarnate. God became incarnate. God became flesh with the specific purpose that he would rob Satan of any power in your life. Now, if that doesn't surprise you, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, is it possibly because you're so distracted by life that you don't pay any attention to Satan at all? You don't know what he's doing and what his minions are doing consistently in your life every day, dragging you away from the Lord? If you knew what he was about the entire time, perhaps you would marvel more that the incarnation enabled the fact for Christ's death to destroy the power of Satan himself. But not just that. This text goes on. It says, for he destroys the power of the, of the one who holds the power of death, the devil, and also to, to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, not just does Satan get destroyed in the midst of the incarnation and Christ's death, but also because of Christ's incarnation and his death, also all those people who have been in slavery to the fear of death are no longer enslaved to the fear of death. And once again, if that just doesn't surprise you, if that just doesn't 
make you overwhelmed with awe, is it possibly because you are so distracted in life that you don't acknowledge the fact that you are a slave to the fear of death? That's, by the way, the author's assumption. The author's assumption here is apart from Jesus Christ, you are a slave to the fear of death. You may not acknowledge it, you may not admit it, you may not live that way, you may not think about it that way, but that's the author's assumption of what you are like. And if you deny that, if you don't realize that, if you don't embrace that, then you will completely miss the awe, the marvel, the wonder that through the incarnation, Christ has not only destroyed Satan, but he has also freed you from the power of death. Christians live an entirely different life because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because of the incarnation of Christ. We live an entirely different life because we live a life that is free from the, power, from the fear of death. Are we going to die if the Lord does not come back again? Yes, indeed. But the fear of death has been broken the fear of death has been wiped away. Why? Because explicitly of the incarnation. Once again, the author here wants you to, mar please, I beg you, don't be so distracted by the things of this season that you fail to marvel at the fact that Satan has been defeated and that fear of death has no hold on you. Verse 16 is where the author, where I get a lot of the, the tone that is here. The author clearly is impassioned when he says, for surely it is not angels. I, I, I like the way that some translations word it. Don't you know? Don't you realize? For don't you realize that it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. If it were angels that he helped. Now, why would he help me? Picture this, once again. In God's overarching creation, we see ourselves as the top of the food chain, okay, but we gotta realize that there are these heavenly beings that are there, part of the God's world, that are amazing, awe-inspiring, powerful beings, majestic in every possible way. They're the angels that are servants, that do the Father's will, that are eager to do that which God desires. There are animals, there's plants, there's rocks and trees, all of God's creation. And yet, Jesus didn't come as a rock. He didn't come as a tree. He didn't come as an angel. What the author is so surprised at, so taken by, is the fact he's looking at all of us and he says, can you imagine, out of everything that Christ could have come as to redeem in this world, he came for you. Not you, but you, and you, and you. And that's what the author here is trying, to, he, he sits there and he's saying to his audience who's reading this, can you imagine that through the incarnation, God in heaven decided that he was coming for you as an individual. Now, is it possible that we get so distracted 
by the things in my life and the belief that I'm just too small. I'm just one person. I'm just the one pastor in one church in the middle of this big city, blah, 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 blah. Is it possible that we get so distracted by everything else that's happening around us that we fail to marvel, I mean marvel, at the thought that the incarnation happened for you as an individual? Because that's what's grabbed this author here. It's not angels. It's not anything else that God could have come to redeem. He's come to redeem you, I beg you. Don't this season get so distracted by everything else that is happening here that you fail to marvel at the fact that our Lord in heaven has come to redeem you. And he did so through the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. Verse 17 then, he goes on, the author says that therefore Christ had to be made like his brothers, and this is not a sexist thing, he had to be make, made like his brothers and sisters, had to be made like a human being in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation, that is atonement, to, to redeem us, to redeem us for, from the sins of his people. Christ had to become like us, now look at what verse 17 adds, in every respect, in every respect, Christ had to be made like me. Why? Because I need to be redeemed. Every part of me needs to be redeemed. Every part of you needs to be taken up by our Lord and the sin that is present there paid for and the freedom that Christ gives, the new life that Christ gives, given to you. And that's only possible if in every respect he has become like you. Why is that? I have some runaway emotions at certain times that get me into trouble, that cause me to sin. I sin because of my emotions. My Redeemer has to give me new emotions. He has to give me the right emotions. He has to take what is broken and, and, and mangled in my life through sin and take that away and give me that which is true. And I have to give to him my mangled, sinful, broken emotions or my mind or my physical state. I sin. You sin through your emotions and through your attitude and through your mental state and through your physical state and you sin in all of these ways and so the Redeemer might save you. He was made like you in every respect and yet without sin so that he might save you so that he might be an atonement, that propitiation, the atonement for sin. It's not that Christ came to this earth and he was so different as a human being that, he can't, that, that we can't connect with him. We connect with him in every possible way. He had an attitude, he had emotions, he had a physical body, he had a mental body, he had all, mental body? Mental state. All of these things. So that, have you ever noticed that I catch myself after I say it? Like, wouldn't it be great if I could catch myself before I say it and stop myself from saying it wrong? He had to be made like us in every respect. I pray, I beg you, 
don't become so distracted by the things of this world, by this season, by the little baby in the manger, that you miss the fact in the incarnation that he was made like you in every respect. In every respect. So that he might save every part of who you are. And then finally, of course, the emotional punchline here, I think, for so many of us in verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when he was tempted, Christ is able to help those who are being tempted. This is classic sympathy, classic empathy. Christ was tempted in every respect, just like you were, so that he might sympathize with you, empathize with you, and in doing so, bring you faithfully to his Father as an offering, as a love offering. Picture what's happening here. Jesus says, the text here says, that through the incarnation, and only because of the incarnation, by the way, sometimes we get the idea that God up in heaven is looking down at all these human beings running around on earth saying, man, that looks really fun. I want to do that too. And then he becomes a human being so that he can kind of have fun like the humans have fun. That's nuts. That's not at all what the text says. The text specifically implies, tells us, not implies, specifically tells us that Christ became flesh so that he might die. And by that death, that he might sympathize and empathize with every one of you. There's not a person out here, no matter what you think you're struggling with, that our Savior doesn't empathize with. Why? Not because he's God up in heaven, but because he has become incarnate, infleshed. He has become a human being. And by taking on that human nature, He is able to sympathize and empathize with everything that is happening in your life. I beg of you, don't get so distracted by everything that's happening in this world that you don't marvel at the fact that the Lord and Savior that we sing to, we all get together in order we can sing so we can lift up Jesus' name, so we all be amazed at who he is. Do not cease to marvel at the fact that in doing that, in being that God, almighty, everlasting one, he is also completely and totally able to sympathize, empathize, to identify with every minute of your life. There is nothing that you go through, no experience you have, no thought that runs through your head, no sin that you struggle with, that our Lord himself was not subject to in his human nature. The author here wants us to marvel at it. He wants us, I think, just to be gobsmacked. Now, there's lots of theology here. We've talked through a lot of these kind of things. You can go back and write a textbook about these verses theologically if you want. And that's great. But don't forget to be in awe. If you're not in awe, if you don't feel that wonder don't be distracted. Turn away from things that are, t- are distracting you and focus completely and totally on Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you again for blessing us 
with the scripture, which lays out for us what it means that you have become incarnate, that you were in flesh, that you became human, that you took upon yourself that human nature. And therefore, O oh Lord, that we are able to identify so completely and in ways to demonstrate your love and your grace. Overwhelm us with that, and in all things we pray, give us that awe of what you have done. uh, Let us marvel and wonder at what the incarnation means, not just for you, Lord, but for us. Through the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.